Convention Friends. The episode you're about to hear was created prior to the enactment of the Well-Ordered Society Act. It is maintained here as a record, an archive, and a legacy of the wandering aimlessness that preceded our current predicament. It represents one step of many on the evolutionary journey from inherited defaults to holy, blessed, righteous surrender in the service of play. Enjoy. Hello, my beloved listeners. Um, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being you. I appreciate you tuning in for yet another week of this podcast. Um, you know, on the crypto episode, I said I had a goal, which was to try and explain cryptography with no more complex math than one plus one equals two. Um, for this particular episode, there's actually no goal whatsoever, <laughs> not even necessarily a topic, um, true to form and really to the spirit of in which I started the podcast. Um, this is really just going to be me kind of musing a bit hopefully to uh, your enjoyment and hopefully in a way that leaves you with something to feel grateful for. Uh, I'm actually recording this on Tuesday morning, which is normally when the podcast comes out. So today's episode is going to be a little late. I apologize for that. But uh, so I want to start with uh, fascination and uh, some excitement. I hope, I think we can all do with a little excitement today. So for those who don't know, last week, the Department of Energy announced that uh, Fusion, we figured Fusion out. For the first time, researchers produced more energy from fusion than was used to drive it, um, promising further discovery in clean power and nuclear weapons stewardship, according to this energy.gov article I'm reading. Um, it's kind of a big deal. Um, kind of happened, I feel like, with not much fanfare. I don't pay attention to, like, I guess I, sh- I shouldn't say that because I don't really pay attention to, like, news or anything like that. Um, but as far as I could tell, not much in the way of fanfare. Um, and this is awesome. I mean, it's huge. Uh, now, granted, this is super, super early stages, and I would actually encourage you all to go and watch the press conference, which, of course, I'm going to link to in the show notes. Um, and I would encourage you all to go watch it. It's kind of fascinating. Um, I guess there's two different types of, uh, or two different methods that get used when it comes to fusion. Sorry, uh, yeah, fusion. And uh, I guess the tech is further along on one of the types, but this is kind of a, this, this new version where they actually produced more energy than went into it is is a uh, i guess a, a more nascent tech so personally i think that's fascinating i'm not a nuclear engineer uh, i'm not an expert on that stuff but um you know i i obviously have uh throughout my time encountered uh many topics from the field of physics i've never really wanted to be a physicist but as a mathematician obviously um you can you know there's a lot of overlap i think uh the physicians sort of rely on a lot of core mathematics to do their work and i think just as a mathematician it's good to know uh, what goes on there. What's also pre- pretty interesting to me is um, one of the most fascinating fields within mathematics, um, I'm kind of obsessed with it actually, uh, is chaos. And um, it's cool because some of the math that comes out of, out of chaos theory is, is how you get lasers, and lasers are uh, a key part of this fusion announcement. So I guess they use lasers to, I don't know, I, I truly don't know. Um, I, I'm assuming they, so my understanding of fusion, right, is like you, uh, you take some atoms <laughs> and then you, you fuse them, uh, you smush them together, and then you get energy out of that. And I think they use lasers to do the smushing, 
and then yeah so <laughs> that's probably not accurate though uh you know i could look this up i'm gonna look up how fusion works i don't i think i have an idea of how fission works so and and i don't know if you guys care about this but like so nuclear fission is when you split the atom right and then you split it and then boom energy comes out literally boom right i think it's more complicated than that but i've always understood it as like Fission is making the atoms come apart. Fusion is making the atoms go together. So, okay, cool. So we've got the Wikipedia up now. Fission is a reaction in which the nucleus of an atom splits in two. The fission process often produces gamma photons and releases a very large amount of energy. Cool. So that makes sense. You split an atom, you get some photons out of it. Fission, sorry, fusion, that was fission. First one was fission with an I. Now, fusion is a reaction in which two or more atomic nuclei are combined to form one or more different atomic nuclei and subatomic protocols, particles. The difference in mass between the reactants and products is manifested as either the release or absorption of energy. So, see, I was right. Fission is splitting the atom. Fusion is smushing them together. And both of these are processes that can lead to energy. Now, we know that in stars, like our sun, that's, there's like some fusion going on. I think it's, uh, I guess it's right here on the Hiki, Wikipedia. Fusion of hydrogen nuclei into helium. So, man, this is some, some chemistry nonsense. But, you know, periodic table, I think, if I can remember correctly, you got... <laughs> You got hydrogen, hydrogen up there on the uh, table, and then you've got helium up there. And I think helium has more electrons, let's call it that, <laughs> right? Because that's how the things, the, the elements on the periodic table, wow, it's been a long time since I've even considered the periodic table. I mean, it's how it works, right? It's like the elements are uh, differentiated by the number of electrons, I want to say it is. I'm just going to look this up too, because I don't know off the top of my head. I don't need to know off the top of my head. Um, how are these arranged? I'm assuming this is number, this has got to be number of electrons. Like hydrogen is up there on the top left. It's got one electron and then helium has two electrons. Let's see. I'm looking at the wiki, Wikipedia. Ah, huzzah. Electron configurations of atoms. Boom. See, I was right. Oh, goodness. It would have been embarrassing if I was wrong. Um, science, man. Science is cool. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's fascinating. Um, for those who care at all about energy stuff. Um, first of all, if you don't care about energy stuff, I'm going to recommend for the second time on this podcast, or maybe the third time, that you read Whole Earth Discipline by Stuart Brand. I will link to it in the show notes. In that book, he talks about basically a lot of um, planet-friendly ways we can continue to derive economic benefit from our lives and society, but um, in planet-friendly ways. And it's a little, I like it because it's kind of down to earth. I think sometimes when you hear about uh, folks who want to save the planet when it comes to energy and, and climate change and whatnot, um, they can be a little extremist about it. Um, in a way that's like a little uncomfortable if you're not an extremist about it. So uh, I like that book because it's like very practical. Like, hey, here's some basic shit we can do. And by we, it's really like governments and big corporations. As an individual, there's really not much you can do, except obviously like you can take small steps, I guess, here and there. But on the grand scheme of things, like on the grand scheme of, scheme of things, the uh, little steps you take are not necessarily going to save us. Um, but you can participate in an effort that for these bigger steps, right? And so I'm going to recommend that book because it's great. And, and one of the things we talked, he talks about in the book is like nuclear power. For a long time, uh, planet-friendly types. I'm going to call them planet-friendly types. Of course, like, that kind of raises the question of who's not friendly to the planet. So, okay, I'm going to frame it this way because I don't want to make it look like you have people who are friendly to the planet and the people who hate the planet. I don't think there's anybody that hates the planet. I hope not. God, I hope no one out there hates the planet. But you have, like, uh, people who are like, we've got to save the planet. Um, and so I'm going to refer to those people as planet-friendly. And then you have, I'm going to call them planet-agnostic people where they just want to live their lives. They don't really give a shit about the planet at least not like actively i think everybody does give a shit about the planet because obviously if the planet goes away we go away with it um but i think some people are like well i can keep doing my thing and i shouldn't really have to worry about it because the planet will be fine 
Um, and I'm, I can understand that view. I think I can, I can sympathize with that emotional sentiment. I wouldn't really put myself in either camp because I don't like to be in camps, but, um, there are, there are things I think we can learn from one another. I think there's things that we, as, um, I'm saying we now by putting on the perspectives of these people. We, as planet-friendly types, we could learn from the planet-agnostic people um, about like priorities and and why those priorities might be the way that they are. Um, and you could argue like, well, what could be any more higher priority than saving the planet? And it's like, well, I don't know. If I were a parent, maybe my kids. Uh, and obviously, like, I want the planet to be healthy for my kids, I guess. So, um, but you'd have to also believe that like the planet's in any kind of serious danger. And I think it's debatable whether or not it's in any serious danger, um, whether or not we'll be able to continue living on the planet <laughs> is another question, I think. But I think the planet will be fine. It's, you know, whether it's habitable for humans or not. Um, and then, you know, if we were planet agnostic people, I think we could also put on the perspective of the planet-friendly types and we could say, hey, maybe I should care a little bit more than being completely apathetic. Because, you know, the planet's pretty cool. Personally, um, like I mentioned, I don't like to be in camps, but um, I've seen a lot of the planet comparably. Com- comparatively. Uh, I've been to a, a few foreign countries and I've been all across the United States. I just recently did another 2,600 mile drive, um, which is great. I highly recommend it. I, I recommend everybody do it at least once. And if you learn anything traveling around, whether it's driving across the country in the United States or flying around the world, it's that we just have a beautiful fucking planet. So if it were in any kind of serious danger and we could prevent it, I don't know anybody who would seriously not want to. It's really, I think, a question of whether or not it's like that, that first part where I started, you know, if it's in any serious danger, I think there's maybe people who it's not made clear to them. Um, and, and usually because the people that are trying to make it clear have an agenda. I think to the extent that you can separate the agenda from whatever information you're trying to convey, you just get better outcomes, personally. Um, anyway, that's super cool. I think fusion is really awesome. I think it's really the, the prospect of nuclear power. Um, oh, that's where I, I also I dropped the thread there. So in that book, Stuart Brand talks about how um, planet-friendly types were pretty anti-nuclear power for quite a, quite a while. Um, and I think, you know, within the, I guess, green energy, green, is it green energy or just green community of people, environmentalist types, um, there's still some skepticism about nuclear power. And I think the reason for that is because in nuclear fission, which is the kind of nuclear power we had before, have currently, I should say, because we don't have a fusion power plant yet, um, you have waste, right, in the form of these rods or whatever. And they're, I think as far as we know, we can't really use them for anything. I don't know if it's, that's like 100% true. Maybe somebody out there knows what we can use them for. Um, but like in, within the general consciousness, how we use them is unknown. Therefore, we see it as waste, right? What do you do with these radioactive rods once you're done with them, um, once they're spent, I guess? I don't really know like what the terminology is. And so if you are conscious about human waste and its impact on the planet, then you would say, well, that's not good. And I think that's a part of, that's, you know, part of it. And then the other part of it is obviously concern, right? You've had like big events we can all, I think, have heard of at least Chernobyl, Fukushima, where you have these power plant uh, accidents or, or disasters. And therefore, in the social consciousness, you also get some fear, I think, around a, a nuclear power plant. You get people who are like, well, I wouldn't want to live near a nuclear power plant because it's dangerous and I don't want to get you know, I don't want to mutate and having three eyes or something. So, which again, I think that's a little, uh, I don't know if that's like a scientific risk that you need to really worry about. And I think in that book, he kind of talks about how in many, many ways, the risks are actually pretty fucking low. So the cool thing though, is that with fusion in this announcement, you potentially have the power for like energy that doesn't have that kind of waste. Now, maybe there's some other kind of waste we haven't yet identified. I don't know that. Um, but in theory, less waste than with fusion or sorry, with fission. So that's really cool. I think it's awesome. I guess it's a rare case where I could say, you know, I feel gratitude towards these um, federally funded research and development centers because I think that's what uh, Lawrence Livermore National Labs, which is where the National Ignition Facility is. I think it's one of those. Um, I tend to not be a fan of um, government funded things just because the government kind of sucks. 
but this is really, <laughs> really cool that they did this. So I do feel gratitude in this case. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful that I guess within, they said in the press conference decades, and then I think the most optimistic estimate was a decade. That means, you know, within our lifetimes, we might see a nuclear fusion-based uh, power plant, which is pretty awesome. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, it's related, I guess, to the undertones of um, when I was talking about information being presented without an agenda is really, um, well, actually, no, before we go there. So I woke up yesterday and I was like, I'm going to write, I'm going to make a new intro to the podcast. So stay tuned. Um, this episode started with the old intro because uh, I haven't finished the new one yet. I have it like uh, the melody, I guess, figured out and like the overall structure figured out. But uh, I still need to work on the, uh, well, I need to clean it up. It's not like polished. and then. Um, there's this vocal sample I really want to use in it, and I don't have permission. They reached out to a number of parties I think can give me permission, and I don't know. I guess I'll hear from them in a couple weeks. So at some point, there's just going to be a new intro to the podcast, and it's going to be fucking. It's going to be fucking awesome. The current one's also pretty awesome. Um, I really like that one, and I'm going to finish that song too. I think as a part of this, being inspired to write a new one, I want to finish that one into what it was supposed to be when I originally started working on it. So I don't know. Maybe some new songs coming to the SoundCloud in a in a future near you. Um, and then the other thing that I woke up with was, um, so I don't know if you guys, um, think in your sleep, I guess is what I'll call it. So there's a dream, which is technically sleeping, thinking in your sleep. And I think like, um, a dream is like, um, you know, you're for me, I can't speak, I don't want to speak for anybody else in their dreams, but for my dreams, um, when I, something I would call a dream is like, I'm in, I'm living out a scenario, you know, I'm living through some experience that is usually always kind of off in some way. Um, like from how I would expect it in my waking moments. Um, and so that's a dream. Um, when I say thinking in your sleep, I mean like, uh, like you're, you have a train of thought during the day. Or um, I saw this tweet the other day that was like, uh, wow, I can't recall it. Holy shit. It's like you, you guys have trains of thoughts. I have a Roomba of thought. Where, oh, that was what it was, a Roomba of thought where I get uh, distracted. And then uh, I turn, my thoughts turn immediately around and go in a completely random direction. Um, I think that's, I don't know. I just thought that was hilarious. Uh, I wish I remembered. I should have saved that tweet. I don't think I did. And I don't think I liked it because I would, I would give credit to the person who came up with that, but it was one of those, I think it was a scenario. I was just scrolling and, uh, in my scroll, I'm going to look right now. I'm looking at Twitter. Did I like it? God, who even knows when this was, I don't really like be on Twitter like that. You know, what's interesting. I'm realizing now as I think through this and try to find this, that I may not even have seen it on Twitter. Taking screenshots of tweets and putting them on like Instagram stories or wherever the fuck else is too common. I get that like linking to the tweet is awful because if you link to a tweet on like Instagram, you don't get like a cute little preview as an image, which is frustrating. Um, That would be maybe like a good feature for Twitter to implement. Maybe that has nothing to do with Twitter though. Maybe it has more to do with Instagram now that I think about it. Uh, Anyway, that was cool. Train of thought versus Roomba of thought. I'm sure I could, you could find it out there if you really wanted to see it. (laughs) Um, But anyway, thinking in your sleep is like, you have a train of thought and then it, while you're awake, excuse me, you have a, a waking thought train and then you go to sleep and the thought train keeps going. So you're able to keep thinking through the thoughts you were thinking while you were awake, while you were asleep. Um, I don't know how common that is. Um, I've heard from at least one friend. Well, no, I've heard from one friend that that's a thing that she does. I've heard from another friend that that's not a thing that he does. So I'd be curious to know, I guess, from y'all, whether or not that's a thing that, ha- a thing that happens for you, where you could be thinking about something in your waking moments and then keep thinking about it in your sleeping moments, and then like pick it back up again when you wake up. So that happens to me occasionally. I can't really control it, sadly, because um, I, I feel like if I could, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool for like, uh, I don't know, productivity. 
because you know you spend so much time asleep. If you sleep eight hours a night, that's fifty six hours of the week. And um, I, I track my weeks in hours. Um, so there are one hundred and sixty eight hours in the week. There's fifty six. I just earmark for sleep. Um, I earmark another fourteen for working out. Although I definitely don't work out as much as I should. I don't work out two hours a day. But I like to think that I would work out two hours a day. So I earmark two hours a day for that. And then if you do that, that leaves like uh, was that seventy six or sorry fourteen plus fifty six is seventy. So that leaves you 98 hours um, uh, for the rest of the week. That's a lot of, a lot of hours. If you worked 40 hours a week, like some people do, then that would leave you 58 hours outside of that, outside of sleep, working out, and work itself. 58 hours, which would still be like, that's actually the largest chunk of time if you think about it. So I don't know if you're grinding away in a 40-hour job, 40-hour-a-week job. Um, and obviously, those jobs never end up only being 40 hours, right? And maybe like if you have to go somewhere, you have to uh, factor in a commute. Um, but I don't know if you guys think through that. Maybe that's a way to uh, find some hope. You might have 58 hours in your week that you're missing out on or not properly using. You could have a whole another eight hours in a day on top of sleeping, working out, and work itself that you could, um, well, maybe not because work usually takes eight hours a day. But you could fit it in there if you, you tried to. Um, would be a fun experiment, I think, for folks. I've done this experiment, so I, I'm telling you from experience that um, figuring out how you make use of those 168 hours can at least be enlightening. I'm not even saying you should be using them a certain way because I think you know you got to use your time how you want to. but it's useful to see how you are already using them if you haven't ever really thought about it. You might find that like you're wasting a lot of hours. Not wasting, but you're not deliberately using them. Let's put it that way. I have a goal to like, I want to deliberately use all 168 hours um, and not like fall into a, like for instance, scroll a death trap where I'm on some social platform just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and the next thing you know, seven hours has gone by. It's a lot of hours. You know, you can do a lot with seven hours. You could drive from uh, LA to just south of San Francisco in seven hours. Um, you could drive from D.C. to Nashville in seven hours. Um, anyway, <laughs> I don't know why my two analogies of what you could do with seven hours of driving. I've been doing a lot of driving lately. So I had this sleep thought, um, and, it, and it's interesting. So the other thing that's interesting about the sleep train of thought is that for me, it doesn't always. So I, I talked about how you could be thinking about something during the day, go to sleep and keep the train, and then wake up and pick the train back up. Um, in reality, it doesn't quite work like that, at least like for me anyway, um, because it's more like uh, I go to sleep and then I pick up a different train. It wasn't necessarily the same train as whatever I was thinking about that day, but I was thinking about something on some set of days. And actually what's really interesting is that it, it's, um, I found that it's like, uh, if I, let's say I have seven days, right, in a week, and I'm thinking about things throughout it, and there's like these, um, let's call them like ephemeral thoughts, um, or like uh, transient thoughts. And there is a theme to them, but in my like consciousness, I'm not really focusing on them. And then in a sleep thought moment, they'll congeal into something more conscious. And then like my sleep self packages up that conscious thought, which is the aggregation of transient thoughts. And it puts it in a little box and then it sets it on my waking up doorstep. So that when I wake up, there's this box of thoughts that are more coherent. And I'm like, oh, I guess I have kind of in a very ephemeral and not conscious way been thinking about this. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that's like great imagery. Maybe I'm just a crazy person. Uh, but one of the things I've been thinking about with that is um, that I feel like um, I was reflecting on like people and, and all of us and, and our ability to process society and life. And I don't know, I've, I've mentioned that this podcast is sort of intended to be a, uh, to stand out as like a positive thing in a world where I feel like, you know, there's a lot of negative energy and people uh, have like this 
it's not, I'd say it's uh, not clear to me that everybody's full of hope and gratitude, right? So I, I think a lot about like, why is that? Um, and I found myself kind of like reflecting on like, okay, so like imagine you're a farmer 200 years ago. Um, 200 may not even be enough years. Let's say a thousand years ago, you know, in the year 1022, which I think is the dark ages. Like I think we call that the dark ages in history. And I was like, what do you really know in that, that world? I think I mentioned like last podcast or the podcast before that, that, um, you know, I was one of the things I think is really cool and I'm grateful for is like Google maps and smartphones and all the world's knowledge at our fingertips. Cause you know, driving across the country, 2,600 miles of whatever. And I'm like, man, if I had to do that with just maps or even like without maps, like imagine doing that trip, going to a land like you, as far as you and the people you know are aware, no one's been to before. Um, there's some treacherous terrain, all that kind of stuff. You're not even really sure what you're going to find. Um, and then I kind of talked about like, even in that world, like let's say, you know, early 1800s, uh, or late 1800s United States, right? Um, if you were in Virginia, like where I came from, then, you know, you have your set of information, your way of living that you know. And then let's say you had people in Phoenix, and I, and I brought that up, I think, because I'd, I'd driven from uh, Virginia to San Diego through Phoenix. And, you know, it's like, there's really no reason why the people in Phoenix would ever know what's going on in Virginia, right? Now, you could get on a horse, I guess, <laughs> and you could ride from, you know, point A to point B. Um, but like information would only get from those places unless if somebody brought it, you know, right? Whether it was be a mail or a newspaper um, or just someone visiting from there. And even then, like you're trusting the messenger to some degree. And so what was interesting as I was thinking about that is like, you know, the kind of information you have to process is much, uh, much more limited in scope because it, on a day-to-day basis, the information you're coming across is probably all somewhat local to you. So it's not just that you're getting less information. Um, it's that the nature of the information is also localized. So your ability to parse it and understand it and work through it is strong. Like your, your muscles, your thought muscles, your evolution muscles for parsing through localized information and making sense of it and determining what's true and what's not true um, is probably pretty good, right? Um, and then as time went on, we got the ability to go more places, right? And so um, you had railroads and cars and planes. And so the effect of that is that you have more people bringing more information to more places. Um, so in our you know, hypothetical example of Virginia and Phoenix, maybe they are both able to see and hear more of the same information through these intermediaries, right? And then you start to have these like trusted intermediaries who bring information from, you start to have these trusted intermediaries who bring information from point A to point B. Um, and then you have the internet come along, right? And I'm, I know I'm like fast forwarding quite a bit. Um, now in the internet world, you know, I've talked a lot about, I've probably mentioned on every single podcast and God damn it, I'm going to mention on every future podcast. <laughs> um, we have all of the world's knowledge at our fingertips in, in these smartphones. Um, if you have a smartphone, and even if you don't, because smart, smartphones are more or less ubiquitous, I think there are more smartphones on the planet than there are people at this point. Let me look this up. How many smartphones on the planet? Wow. The number of people that own a smartphone, smart and feature phone is 7.26 billion people. Think of that. Think about that for a second. There are like 8 billion people in the, in the world, roughly. And... 7.26 billion of them have smartphones. Like that's in, first of all, just like from a technology penetration perspective, holy shit, right? Oh wait, okay, hold on. I got that wrong. That's people with either a smartphone or a feature phone. So a feature phone for the, the kids um, who may not know this is like an old phone that is digital, but not smart. So if in my, for instance, when the first cell phone I ever got would have been a feature phone. Um, it had something that was kind of the internet, but not really. Um, and it was very slow. But theoretically, I could do internet searches on it. <laughs> it wasn't smart, though, because it was very awful of an experience. But technically, 
there was stuff you could look up on the internet with it. I think that's what's meant by a feature phone. And so there are, for mobile phones, totally, that's the 7.26 billion, but 6.64 billion with smartphones. That's absolutely insane. Like from a tech, I don't, is there any other technology? Like other than like probably shoes, right? And clothing, like basics that people need. Um, that's like insane to me, actually. But that's, that's great because it, it goes to the point that like smartphones are essentially ubiquitous. So that means information is ubiquitous um, in a way that it wasn't in the past. So as I think about um, like, I don't know, why is it that people might feel some kind of way about everything, <laughs> everything going on, even myself, right? I find myself um, often, not often, maybe often, sometimes often, sometimes not often, feeling odd about information and, and the way the world is being presented to me and my understanding of it. And I think when I realized, uh, and this is like where the, the sleep thought came in, uh, we, um, our ability to move information around the world and process it, and also to get to meet people has got way better <laughs> than our ability, way better, way faster. Um, is better even the right word? I guess that's like, that's almost saying it's a good thing. Um, I think it's a good thing though. So I'm going to say better. Um, it got way better, way faster than our ability to process information or create information. Um, and so I feel this, I think, probably because I'm a consultant and I have to spend a lot of time as, a, and, and, and before that, a hacker. So I mentioned the hacker episode, like the whole job of a hacker is really to understand stuff. We're these curious little cats running around and we see things and we're like, how does that work? Like um, I went to a hotel and they had this cool little uh, RFID door opener thing. And a lot of hotels do, right? You hold the card up to the door and I more or less understand how that works. But this particular hotel, it was different. And I was like, I wonder how this is different. I wonder why this is different, like how it works under the hood, right? Um, as another example of just like hacker curiosity, I was driving across the country, right? And I noticed at some point, I still have a mental note I made to, to look up why this is the case, by the way. So I haven't looked it up yet. But um, credit card reader thingies in gas stations or convenience stores, there was a point where, so if you go to, go to your local gas station or your local convenience store and look at the reader itself, Usually there's a brand name of whoever the card, like whoever made the piece of plastic that's going to read your card, right? And I noticed that it's pretty much all Verifone until I got to some point west where it became Ingenico, I-N-G-E-N-I-C-O. And I was like, huh. So at first I was like, it's pretty amazing to me that Verifone has such like market dominance in this. Um, and I started wondering like, how does that happen, right? And then, because one of the things is like, there's some gas stations you could like tap to pay, right? With your credit card. And I like doing that because it's easier than like, Otherwise, you got to like stick it in if it's a chip and it like sits there and it reads for a while. It's just kind of slow. I was like, tap to pay is cool because it's faster. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was like, it's interesting that some Verifone gas station card things have the tap to pay and some don't, but they're all Verifone. And then I just, it, I got me wondering like, what's the refresh cycle for the card reader in a gas station pump? And then like magic, it switched to Ingenico, you know, at some point. I want to say it was like, um, it wasn't in Oklahoma. It might've been like somewhere in Texas. And then from there westward, it was all Ingenico or mostly Ingenico. You still saw, there's still a lot of Verifone as well, but mostly Ingenico. Um, and then I just, I don't know, I got wondering about that. But like, that's like an example of hacker curiosity. I bring that up because those, that kind of thing is something that as now it's my job to consult and notice those kinds of things and explain to people who are interested. And as a result, I come across lots of information and I find myself sometimes in a position where I'm like, how do I, first of all, understand all the information that's coming my way? And like, I'm really chasing it. I'm like, I'm pulling the information my way. And then also create information. So I've had the fortune of um, both from a consulting perspective and then just in the military, I've had a lot of experience in how to communicate. Arguably, I'm a pretty good communicator. Um, I've, you know, I've taken classes on public speaking before. I got like tons of training in the military on how to brief people and like, I don't know, stand in front of groups and talk. Um, as a consultant, obviously, I've you know, worked um, writing reports of all kinds and um, 
also in my, you know, back in the day, uh, when I was a kid, I used to help translate Spanish because I, I kind of sort of speak fluent Spanish. It's gotten worse. It's not as good as it was when I was younger. Um, but I've just picked up in a combination of being in school and uh, being in Southern California where Spanish is also kind of ubiquitous. So if you need to practice, like you don't need to go to Mexico or Spain to get an immersive Spanish speaking experience in Southern California. We've got one right here. Um, so, you know, I, I've done some translation. One of the things that's cool about translation is you start to, you really get to understand the language that way. And I think even as a native English speaker, it helped me understand native English a bit. Um, because you start to, <laughs> when you start to translate, so like you can go to school and I think this is part of what makes fluency difficult. When you go to school to learn a language, you learn all the basics, like the grammar and some words. Um, but that, like, that's not how people, we, how we talk is not the grammar and the words. How we talk is the phrases, right? And the, the context. And there's like what's implicit and what's explicit. So explicit is like the words you say and then implicit is like what you understand from the words that get said. Um, we are all familiar with this because we all like memes. Memes are usually um, really creative triggers of implicit thoughts or feelings based on something explicit that was very limited, right? So you get like a little morsel of explicit and then it, it sparks off this chain reaction of implicit that makes you happy or at least connects you to the meaning of it. Um, and then, you know, you realize that some, only some people will understand it because only some people will know the context. They need to make that leap. So you see that all the time when you translate because like you start out, if you're naive, like I was at once, one point, naive just meaning you don't know as much where you start to translate things literally. Um, and then I hit a point I remember in my translating of Spanish where I'm like, man, like I know English, right? But we say, we, we say all this shit that doesn't make sense when you translate it because when you translate it literally. Because the words we said aren't what we meant. <laughs> and it's, it's wild. I actually think we do that more in English than other languages do it. Um, that I may only be thinking that because my experience with other languages is less. But I feel like Spanish is a bit, well, no, that's not true, actually. It happens a lot in Spanish, too. I guess every language does that. <laughs> it, the way it happens, though, is like, I feel like English relies on it a lot more. We're, we're weird. English is like weirdly implicit. There's a lot of implicitness. And I think in other languages, there's, it's not explicit in the sense that like there are words. That's what it is. In English, it's like we, everything has to have a word for it. And in other languages, um, Tense and um, conjugation and context are more meaningful. You got more tools, I guess, to express the context of something in some other languages. And, and in English, it's just like you got words. Um, and I probably am not explaining that well. But what I've encountered is like it's hard to, how do you create information is kind of like the translator's dilemma, right? Someone's given me some information and I have to synthesize that and then turn it into information on the other side in the other language that the person I'm talking to can understand which means I have to know more almost than both of them do about the languages they both speak. We all speak. Um, so I can make these links between the implicit communications from the English side and the implicit communications from the Spanish side and back and forth, right? Um, and that's where, like, <laughs> I guess the more I learned that and the more I learned Spanish, the more I was like, I felt less fluent because it's like, oh, I know this language. I can speak. I can, you know, converse in it. But then once you see, it's like once you see the iceberg of all, the, like what you don't understand about it from the implicit side, then you're like, oh, I don't really know this language. Um, and so you, it gives you more to dig into, right? And, and really reading and like literature is a great way to, to poke through that because books are like a fast way to get to that. Otherwise, you just have to have a shit ton of conversations. And again, they're only 98, let's call them 98 usable hours of the week because, um, you know, 56 are sleeping and allegedly 14 are for working out. Um, information is just this really curious thing, right? Um, that I wondered, I found myself in the sleep thought thinking about like, I wonder if some of the anxiety people feel because I think, you know, if you were to, I could Google statistics on anxiety and it'd probably say something like people feel more anxious. Um, I could marvel at some of the emotional out reactions to, um, the emotional reactions to um, like stuff happening on social platforms. And I think, you know, again, some of it's positive, but I think there's a lot of negative. Um, my own observation is there seem to be more things pulling towards the negative than towards the positive. And, you know, I'm just like, why is that? 
I think it's because we all feel anxious with, with the information overload we experience. So again, a thousand years ago, you may not have known many people ever in your whole last life. First of all, you may have only lived 35 years, 40 years, maybe 50 years if you're lucky. But like now, life expectancy is like 80, basically, um, you know, mid 70s to 80. So first of all, think about that. <laughs> Within relatively recent times, like not just, it hasn't been a super long time that people have been living to 80, you know? Now, obviously there's always been exceptions, but if the average life expectancy was like, I don't know, 35, 40, 50 or whatever during some time period, um, and then suddenly it's like 70, <laughs> you know, that's like twice as much life. Arguably like your, your biological and, and like evolutionary tools are probably not developed enough for that. At least they're not going to catch up. Like you might, you might be the guy or gal in a world of people who only live to 35 that lives to 70. And like, you're the first person to live to 70, right? Or you're one of the few people who live that long. And like, what do you do with the other extra 35 years you've just been given, right? Like your social, everything has been conditioned around this world of people that die sooner. Um, so that's like part one of why you don't know as many people. Part two is before information getting from flying all over the place at your fingertips unlimitedly um, with the ability to meet people behind the information. Um, before that, you just, you did all you ever really knew were the people you could physically get to, which means not many, right? Like presumably, I don't know. I've been in like small-ish towns where you get like small town, small town dynamics where quote unquote, everybody knows everybody. Right. And that's like kind of true. It's true in the sense that, uh, if we could say there's a strength of how much you know somebody based on how often you interact with them within a smaller town of say like 5,000 people, you kind of know everybody loosely, right? Like at the furthest distance of person you don't know, there's still like a closer, like a stronger connection than say me in San Diego, where there's like a, over a million people or like the person I know least has no, not, I have no knowledge of them, right? Maybe in like a small town, it's, you don't know them, know them, but you know, of them, you see them maybe once or twice. So there's like a, um, a loose familiarity, you know, there was a time, I think not, too long, not even that long ago, really, where like the number of people you could meet was just limited. You didn't have to meet too many people. You didn't need to have tools for meeting everyone. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's really how I'm going to frame it. Now we have the tools to meet everyone. And I think like, Mentally, biologically, we probably just haven't evolved yet to a place where we're socially capable of that in, in a way that doesn't lead to, say, anxiety, for example. Um, whereas before, it's like, well, I'm a, I meet my family and I meet the people in my town and I meet maybe the people in like early cities, but there's not a lot of them. And even then, we only really have to know the people in this city because the information from, you know, Virginia, if we're in Phoenix, isn't ever going to get here unless somebody brings it or it's only going to come through the paper. But if it comes to the paper, it's like I've got this cute little paper window into the, uh, the other place. So I don't really need to engage with it. I might read the paper for funsies, but I don't need to engage. It's kind of one way, right? Also, like, I'm not able to communicate back to the stories, to the people that the stories in the paper are about in some other place. So, again, in my, my brain's pecking order of engagement, it's just super low. Now it's like, with your smartphone, with the internet, with social networking, you could meet everybody, you know, in theory. Um, and so, I don't know, I just think, I found myself like, wow, that's, that's interesting, right? That's part one of it. And then part two is information as well. So like these, these go together, like who you can meet, the people you interact with and the information. Like there's information you can get without meeting anybody. For instance, I just went to this website called Bank My Cell. I don't even know if this is an accurate website. So, you know, <laughs> maybe it's wrong. Well, it's, it has logos from all these different, like Wikipedia and CNET and Rolling Stone. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it has some legitimacy. But like think about this. Whoever bought the domain bankmycell.com is a person, right? There's a person or group of people that built this site. And they made this and I just got this information. And, and so in that sense, what I'm saying is like before someone had to bring you your information, whether it's the paper man or the people who wrote the paper. And if it's a local paper, you knew them probably, even if it was a national paper, like, well, maybe you didn't know the national ones. I guess that there's probably like a, 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 a point as well. I, you know, I kind of went straight from pre-internet to internet and I, you know, skipped right over like mass media where suddenly you had like national television and national papers where, you know, you don't really know the news anchors on national television. You don't really know the authors of the national 
paper. But, you know, even then there was a time, I guess, when television became a thing where people started to feel some kind of way about those national anchors because, you know, they started to feel like they knew them because they could see them on a regular basis and get information from them. And, and these people were representations of information from far off lands um, coming to their local place. Right. And, and it's, it's fascinating, right? Cause it's like, holy shit, there's like a whole world out there of, of billions of people. And up until the point where we had mass media and mass communications, I may have never, I, I wouldn't have even reasonably had any way to know <laughs> that those people existed. Um, as a side note, uh, I, I read a lot about the history of California on my drive and by read, I mean, listened to, and, um, you know, it goes over a bit about like the Spanish, um, explorers, conquerors, whatever, and their initial reactions, uh, and, and interactions with the native, uh, Californians. And, uh, it's interesting because one of the things that stood out to me, again, maybe just having been a translator before is, uh, it's crazy that they were able to ever figure out communi- communicating with each other. And it's like, you know, obviously this is something we do. We have, you know, I think thousands of languages in the world and we can communicate across them. So it's not that weird. But it was just, I don't know, I was fascinated when I hear about like two people who don't speak the same language coming across one another and then knowing they like preferring to communicate instead of killing each other. Right. Cause in some cases, now there was a lot of killing. Um, but in some cases, it was like, well, I don't, let's not kill each other. Let's play around with sticks and rocks and symbols and see if we can find a way to communicate. Um, and then like we did, you know, that's wild. I don't know. I just think that's fascinating and cool. Um, but again, on the order of things you have to know how to do, pretty small, right? Um, now, let's say you have the same biological material and DNA and all that of, uh, of a person who's uh, of any human, right? Because we, you know, we're all sort of the same species. And then you're plopped in, you're born in 2000, let's say, because I, I know some people born in like 2000 and after, which is crazy to me as a 1990s baby. Um, it's not that crazy. Well, <laughs> what's crazier is like you, uh, someone born in 2010 is eight, you know, and I'm like, or, wow, I can't math. It's 12. Holy shit. It's not 2018. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, you could be born like in a time that I remember pretty clearly and, and I'll be like almost an adult. And that's kind of crazy to me. Um, but like you take someone like that born in this world where you, there are ubiquitous devices where you can know everyone and you can know everything. Um, not that you would know everyone or would know everything. Again, I think we don't have the biological or like mental architecture to process that. Um, but when I think about like anxiety and why people get it, I sometimes wonder like maybe that's the problem. Like our, we just, our processing faculties just haven't caught up to our ability to, um, receive information and create it. And I think um, I can say for me that uh, what's interesting is, is the creating side. Because I think we, I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say that it's fairly easy to process information, for me anyway. Um, I think a lot of people, it's, probably e- it's, it's generally easier to process it than it is to create something from it. Like, and, and by create something from it, I just mean know what to do with it. Know how to synthesize it. Know how to understand it. Know how to um, make a decision based off of it. And then also communicate about it. Right? And so like, those are a number of steps. in like, I, Reading information is as simple as I pull up Wikipedia, I read a page. Um, but then creating something from that information, whether within myself or out in the world, takes a step of like parsing and understanding and connecting dots that is slower than just reading the Wikipedia article would be. And I found myself in this sleep plot thinking like, wow, you know, maybe that's like part of the anxiety is not knowing how to do that creative side. Um, because I felt this, this is why I started the podcast. I have all this information I consume in my information diet. And I talked about like the feast of ideas that I chew on. And I found myself like, holy shit, I don't know what to do with all of this. I have all this stuff I'm constantly being bombarded with, which I'm very, very careful about filtering out. I don't, I, I, it's probably not fair actually to say that I get bombarded with information because I'm pretty good about filtering out information I don't want to get on accident. Um, but even for the stuff I deliberately getting, I'm like, holy cow, there's just so much of it. And then it's like, who and what am I as this being that's like loosely parsing all of this? And like, I can feel how my faculties are catching up to the ability it's it's like it's not that the information is hard to understand 
It's like I can feel that my basic faculties that I like was that our species has evolved to have aren't yet capable, like don't have muscle memory and, and sinews built up for this level of processing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all bumping up against it, I would say, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but it's strange because for me that, 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 that doesn't, that's never given me anxiety. All the existence of all the information and the, like being able to know everyone and everything isn't something that has given me anxiety. And I know that it does give some people anxiety. They feel overwhelmed by how much, just how much there is, right? How much there is, right? I mean, it's like, it's like there's so much out there to know, to see so many people you could meet. And I know that that can be an overwhelming feeling. And I, feeling. And, um, I think maybe because I've traveled a lot, um, it's less overwhelming to me. And I think it's because in my head, I guess I just flatten everything down, right? Like you end up learning that everything is really the same and we're all the same and everything is the same. And then it's like far less intimidating and less, <laughs> less overwhelming. Um, although you lose a lot of like detail in that flattening. Um, but what is anxiety inducing potentially is like, well, what if you could see and you know, you've got all the world's finger, all the world's information at your fingertips. And it's like, what do I do with this? <laughs> I think that's like the far more anxiety inducing thing. Um, cause it's like, how I understand some of it, you know, some significant or no, well, almost certainly not significant, but some percentage of it. And, um, it's like, what, how do I express this knowledge in a form that I can like also associate with in identifying me as me. Um, and so I don't know when I had this, I guess, crisis of like giving back from the information diet, that's when I'm like, well, I guess I'll create a podcast because if I just ramble on every week, then I'll have, I mean, by this point, there's been seven episodes and this is number eight. That's like eight hours of me just rambling. So it's kind of like a release, actually, like a creative uh, information release where it's like, well, I've got all this information I'm pulling in. Pretty good at that. Um, but I can't like shit it out fast enough. It's like, it's literally like I'm eating from the feast of ideas and the podcast is me shitting them back out. <laughs> um, although I don't, I want the imagery to be that you and I, dear listener, are sitting at a table enjoying this feast, not that I'm shitting on you with ideas. So I apologize if that's the imagery I gave. Um, but I, I, I'm empathizing um, with the sentiment that uh, I think induces anxiety in some folks. And, and, and also just, I think, induces either anxiety or any strong emotional response, whether that's like significant rage. You know, people, I think, on social media often easily find themselves in rage. And that's obviously in part because the algorithms are designed to highlight and promote um, exciting content, right? Exciting in the, like, exciting a particle sense, since we started this episode with particles and, and, and nuclear stuff. Um, exciting energizing etc um but also i think it's just like that might just be what we do when we can't cope with both the amount of information and people we can know and also cope with feeling that we can't engage with it all right because it's one thing to know that you can know everything and then be able to flip through everything it's one thing to know that you could know everyone um but then you're faced with like i think from like on a core identity level and like who am i level like well how do i how do i splash in this big pond Whereas like before all that, you know, again, you were just a person in a small town or a person in a, in a city where information was localized and the people were kind of all more or less people you knew, or at least you didn't have to know that many people. You didn't feel like you could realistically know everyone um, or even know people all around the world. And then now it's like, well, now I can know everyone. <laughs> uh, and now I can know everything. And then it's like your, your mental and biological systems, right? Because I, I think this is somewhat just like biological and social evolution. You're, we're at a stage of history where it's like we are not yet, we don't yet have the built-in capabilities. And maybe this is like such a big change that the people who do will be completely unrecognizable. Like, I don't know what, how long the transition from like pre-human or pre-homo sapiens to like homo sapiens was. Like you had, uh, I don't know, Neanderthals, I guess, that came before us. And we see them, I guess, historically as like kind of us but lesser, like the, the pre-evolved version. I wonder if we're at this like Bayes transition where the next, the people with the capability to competently manage all of the everything and everyone they can know 
um, are so unrecognizable to us and like so advanced from our perspective that like we can't relate necessarily. You sort of already see this. I mean, even in my lifetime, I, we're very fortunate us nineties babies because a lot's happened <laughs> in our roughly 30 years of life. Um, it's interesting that, uh, I remember a day at a time when it's like, don't talk to strangers was advice you gave kids. Don't talk to strangers. Strangers are creepy. Don't talk to strangers on the street. Don't give out any information about yourself on the internet because it's dangerous. You don't know those people. And, and you know, it's, I think that stems from like, there's people over there. We don't know those people. We can't know those people because the only way to know those people is if they come here and if they come here, they might be violent. Um, right. Cause that's how conquering work. Um, so again, I'm just like biological, social evolved muscle memory, like masses of people coming from somewhere to here is usually not a good sign. Historically speaking, um, it can be a good sign, but you know, oftentimes it came with like disease and war. And then, um, <laughs> so like that's part of it. Right. And then it's like, now you can, you know, talk to, you'll, you'll, you'll see more strangers on this, on the streets cause we're urbanizing more. And then with the internet, you know, don't tell anybody anything because you don't know those people. You can't know those people. I think it's more a sense of like, well, you can't know those people. You can't know if you can trust them. Therefore, don't tell them anything because they might be dangerous because people from over there you don't know are dangerous. Like just basic, you know, dumb, neat person biology. Um, and then now we live in this world as the internet's developed where it's like, well, I have really good friends I've never met in person. Um, and then like even what is a good friend, <laughs> right? Like when I was in, in school, a good friend was someone I met and hung out with on a regular basis in person. Now, and I may be unique here because I also was in the military. When you join the military, you travel all over the world and then suddenly you intersect with people physically less often than you might communicate with them, I should say. So maybe you do connect with them physically from time to time, but then you're, the primary modus of your communication is actually digital or, or via some mechanism that's not physical. Um, so you, can, you develop the friendship in a way that's super, super strong, but maybe you haven't physically seen them. As an example, I was just in Nashville for a friend's wedding. Really good friend. One of my best friends from when I was in school. Um, so in that sense, like we built the foundation of the relationship in, in a physical basis, but we've kept, I, but then we graduate in 2014 and I haven't seen him physically, gosh, since then, basically maybe one time in like 2018 in passing. Um, but we've maintained the relationship digitally. Right. Um, and I, and, and I think like you could have that strength of the main, the digital part without ever having had the physical part. And I know that because I do have friends in that scenario as well. And that's just fundamentally new, <laughs> you know, uh, for us as humans, as a species, that's fundamentally new. Um, it's fundamentally like new, like in the order of like, not even like that long, right? Like it's changed since, you know, I was a kid in the, you know, mid to late nineties to now where like the scale on which you can do that is now I would say you could in theory know everyone. There's no one in the world in theory with this, the amount of smartphones and mobile phones. There's really no reason you couldn't know someone literally anywhere um, and couldn't develop a relationship with someone literally anywhere. So that's just, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know, that's fascinating to me. This is more a fascination episode, I guess, than a gratitude episode. Um, I'm, again, I started with, I'm super grateful to the folks at DOE and, and, the, and Lawrence Livermore National Labs and I guess for, you know, the federally funded research on nuclear power because I think that's cool and important. Um, and to the extent the government doesn't fuck it up, I can, I can happily give the government kudos and the people that the government funds because it's usually like non-government people the government's just giving money to. Um, but I'm also fascinated by the state of that, right? And like how we manage that and then just like, you know, kind of leads back to um, I noticed as well, like, that doesn't seem to be much fanfare for this, but that's, that's the thing. When you can know everything, when all the world's information is at your, your fingertips, there's no fanfare for anything really in, in that sense. Um, and I think that's an, both an opportunity. Um, and you know, again, that's part of why I've been doing the podcast is like, well, I can create fanfare for the stuff I notice and you can create fanfare for the stuff you notice. And we all have the tools now to create fanfare for the stuff we notice and like, and then we can have like all these localized pockets of fanfare for stuff that interests us in a way that's just like, really cool and also just like wow kind of not scary but it's an unknown it's like this big unknown like what does it mean like 
how much, at what point do we really like become a super organism where we've got all these um, non-physical communication pathways that allow us to build like localized systems and community, local, local to the people that participate, not physically local. Local means something different, I guess. And I'm seeing this like shift in like what local means where you can have like local knowledge within a community, but that community is spread all over the place physically. Um, but because of the internet and the tools we have doesn't feel that way, which is why you can have people who are fans of say a podcast and they all feel like they're a part of the same community. Or you can have people who watch a video, you know, a streamer on Twitch and, and, um, or a YouTuber and they can feel like they're all part of the same community. Or you have people who are member, you know, fans of sports teams and they're distributed all over the place physically, but they feel like they're part of the same community. They share the same memes. They partake in the same information in the same forms. Um, it's like that's a local community to some extent. It's just not physically local. And the like biological and, and mental and social muscles we inherited and, and evolved to have, I think are capable of localizing that way. And I think that's why you see like some of the online tribal behavior. We're just shifting it from like the physical space to that. But then I do think there's still like this, we're physical beings, right? So then there's like this also other side of it where it's like, for instance, you can have a bunch of people in a city all living right next to each other, crammed in and packed in, but all in different local environments in their heads. I know it's really interesting, um, really fascinating. Um, and, you know, I'm here to say that I think it's a tremendous opportunity to um, do good, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's a possibility of getting overwhelmed by all the information. On the other hand, there's also the ability to see and, and understand and appreciate and find the beauty in all that information. So, um, you know, I'm on team. Let's use this as an opportunity to uh, take all that and see all the beauty in the world we otherwise would never have seen. I'm not on team. This is bad and overwhelming and I want to kill it. <laughs> so not that there need to be camps because again, I don't, I don't like camps. Um, but uh, if there were, I want to create a camp. How's that? <laughs> I don't know if there's a camp already for like, let's just all appreciate the beauty in the world, but I'm on camp that and I'm on, on camp. I'm on camp beauty and gratitude and hope. Um, like hope for uh, nuclear fusion based power plants in our lifetime. That's cool. Hope for, uh, you know, again, I, I look at our, our nuclear endeavors as like, obviously we all know we can destroy the planet with it, but you know, we can also save it, I guess. And now we like really can. We can create a little mini sun, a little Iron Man sun in our little exosuit with fusion in theory, if we ever figure out how to get it down that small. But like now that we get, know the process, I managed only like, we're pretty good. I think as humans, it's like, you know, we don't know something. We don't know something. We don't know something. Someone figures it out. And then suddenly everyone's like, Oh, now we know what to do with that. <laughs> you know? And then next thing you know, like, we, you know, their estimates were a decade. I'm sure it'll be like, well, I don't want to say I'm sure, but I wouldn't at all be surprised. if It was like humans going to human. And then two years later, we were like doing all kinds of really cool nifty stuff with fusion in a way that no one could have ever predicted. And then like people 50 years ago, look at everything we have now. And like, you guys are dark evil wizards from the future. Um, I don't know, I'm hopeful that uh, <laughs> we can take all this and we can, we can uh, make some good out of it. But uh, I am also empathetic to like the pressure and I guess anxiety folks might feel with being able to know everyone and everything because it's kind of new. And I guess, I don't know, I'm saying, you know, I feel it too. So don't feel bad if you're looking at all this or you just find yourself without words to understand, like, why am I feeling anxious? Or I shouldn't feel strong emotions in the way I'm feeling strong emotions. And I, can, I, can, I guess what I can say for you listeners is, you dear listener, excuse me, um, is that I, uh, I feel it and I, I sometimes, I think I'm starting to notice that strong emotional reactions in some cases are what my like biological, mental and social systems internally that I like evolved to have, what they do when they're like, we don't have the, we don't have the faculties for this. It's like, does not compute, not can't compute, but like doesn't. Like your brain, your body, your evolution helped you build up these tools for a world that most humans lived in for most of human existence, right? For like thousands, hundreds of years. Here we are in like the last 40 years. 30 years maybe even, where like things have changed a shit ton. So all of the like biological and mental and social systems have to catch up. You see this in like social systems and, and structures. So much about the way society is organized is based on like the industrial revolution and it just doesn't fit. And we all know that it doesn't fit. We feel that it doesn't fit. It's why you see like these huge disparities in wealth and why you see 
um, just disparities, right? Like these massive, massive disparities between um, people all trying to navigate it. We're like 10, like time of like tremendous, right? A time of like tremendous churn and, and um, shifting and like all the existing structures and all the existing like institutions are really designed around like the inter- inter- industrial era. And now we're in this like supercharged information era and those things just haven't caught up. But also we as individuals haven't caught up. Like I think it's where you see starting to like understand that strong emotional reactions to things that people have, whether it's on social media or in the news or, or anywhere, it might just be like, that's what happens when all the systems we've evolved to have, they go like, they freeze up <laughs> and then like does not compute. And then all that we're left with is like raw emotion. Like adrenaline starts to kick in and we're like, we don't know what this is. Fight or flight, activate strong anger or strong anxiety or strong whatever. Um, and I don't know, I guess it's cool. Once you know that, I guess you can start to build strategies for uh, defending yourself, growing yourself, molding yourself so that you can handle it. And I know for me, it's like, you know, again, I mentioned, I don't, I'm very, very careful about information coming my way. I don't, I don't really, I rarely get information accidentally coming at me, but that's because I, you know, again, my, my business is information. I'm a, I'm a hacker and all that. So I kind of have to, I've just built up techniques for managing the flow of information that way so that I don't ever get information on accident, which leaves space for my curiosity. My curiosity has to stay strong and, and vibrant. So I can't be, I can't have a flood of random shit information I don't want. And, and so I, I really am pretty good about, I've, I've taken steps to limit how much that can even happen in the first place, which is also why, you know, if you're ever trying to contact me and it's hard, it's because I don't, I'm sort of designed things to not be possible to just contact me. I want to, but if you have interesting information, I've also kind of built up the uh, rivets, I guess, <laughs> rivets in the ground for your information water to flow towards me because I do have like information I don't want to miss. Um, like for instance, you have information on like a sexy new vulnerability and something um, for a lot of reasons. That's, that's interesting to me. So it's easier to come at me on that pathway than just like something random, truly random. Um, and honestly, like some of my biggest frustrations are when there's stuff that I can't help. And it's like, how did this get to, how did this even get to me? And I'm like very frustrated. Uh, and then I go figuring out like, all right, this has to never get to me again because and it's not that I don't ever want to see it. It's just the way this came to me so fast, so sudden, so unexpected. We can't have that. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know if everybody feels that way, but it's, it can certainly be helpful. Um, if you find all of the, everything you can know and all the, everyone you can meet a little overwhelming. Um, anyway, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being here. And um, yeah, I'm right here with you. You know, if you're feeling some anxiety about everything, you're not understanding transitions in, in social interactions and society and technology, you know, I, I kind of, I feel it. I too feel it. That's why I started this podcast, honestly, is because I was like, I need a way to just create information out there. I need a way to explore the synthesis of information that I'm receiving because I'm, I'm really receiving more than I'm generating on the information front. I think everybody maybe is, because generating is slower. And also because there's so much and, and of such different types, it's harder to do than it might have been 30 years ago, maybe. Um, I don't know. I wasn't around then. I mean, I was a baby, but I get, the, I feel like maybe that's part of what's going on. It's like, we all just don't have the tools. So me, I'm here podcasting. Maybe that's why podcasting is so popular, by the way, is it's, it's people like me doing it and then you listening and then we're subconsciously gelling, you know, becoming the super organism. And then we're finding generative ways to handle this information in our daily lives through this kind of connection. And so maybe that's why like content, you know, in the creator world has been, become so popular. I mean, I think um, I'm, God, I'm, I'm supposed to be ending the podcast and I'm still going. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll stop with this. Uh, I, I think one of the things that's really cool about like, TikTok, and you see like Instagram's copying it with like reels and YouTube with shorts, but I think TikTok's done the best job of it with their algorithm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm going to call it emergent phenomena, right? Within like sub communities on TikTok based on the way the algorithm creates the For You page and then the way that the people who see the same things interact with the creators who create and then like the type of content that gets created based on those interactions. Um, I feel like it's more interactive and engaging in a two, it's more two way than other content types. Um, if I feel like, um, I might be wrong, but 
I think that's basically what's happening. And so you start to get this like uh, emergent social phenomena over there that feels compelling because it's like you feel like you can grasp it. And then I think that's just a testament to the interface. It means TikTok's built an interface to it and a way of working with it that makes your engagement with it feel natural to you and compelling. And just copying it isn't necessarily going to work because it's, it's the interface, but it's also like what got created, like what emerged around that interface and, and that particular data set. I think Twitter is the same way in terms of its data set. And, but the interface is fucking garbage. Um, I don't just mean the way it looks. I just mean like the tools you have for interacting with it are pretty bad. Anyway. Um, oh, wait a minute. That was very negative. I can't end on a negative condom, con, con, like judgmental note like that. My goodness. I am still grateful to, for, for Twitter, by the way. And I'm not, just, I'm not just saying that to counteract the negativity I just spit out there. But uh, I'm pretty grateful for Twitter because it's, I don't use it that much because um, I'm not the biggest fan of its interface, like I just kind of said. But uh, I do think it is a unique source of a way to get certain information. Um, now, you have to like slog through a bunch of information you don't want to get to do that. But there's also like a lot of uniquely presented information. Um, present, it's the same information, but presented in a unique uh, form factor on Twitter. Um, so if you're willing to slog through all the noise, then you can find some really cool snippets of info and, and synthesize them in your own mind. So I, I am grateful for Twitter for that. Um, also, I'm pretty glad that at some of the things they're doing these days, um, they're making some changes that I, you know, I guess part of my, my condemnation was like, why are they not already doing this? <laughs> I have a lot of stuff with platforms. I'm like, why is the platform not doing this already? Um, so, and I wish they like, I mean, I'm sure they do solicit feedback, but um, anyway, uh, I'm grateful for our connectivity and our ability to kind of know each other and Twitter is a part of that. So please don't go taking my previous statements about it, the garbage there as being um, indicative of my whole, my whole feeling. Um, I'm pretty positive towards like TikTok and Instagram and, and all of these social platforms that are trying, that are experimenting with different interfaces and different ways of cultivating a data set um, with an interface that we can interact with. Because it's really all of us trying to figure out how to deal with the, the new reality of being able to know everyone and everything. And so we're all trying out different ways of doing it, like Snapchat, like TikTok, like Instagram, like Twitter, like, I don't know, Reddit. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> that's all, y'all. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast, if you're not already following it, you, you encountered this somewhere, somehow on some platform that's not a podcast platform. You can go to justhere.club and there are links to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Fountain FM, which is what I recommend because you can earn Satoshis, aka Bitcoin, by listening. Um, there's also uh, the Twitter account at Just Here Club, which I don't, I really only tweet from when there's a new episode. Um, so if you want to know when there's a new episode, you can um, follow the Twitter and then I usually tweet when I put out a new episode. Um, you can also follow my, uh, my not podcast socials, my personal, I don't want to call them personal because they're not exactly personal, but you can follow the laughing man's socials. Um, it's usually the laughing man on pretty much all the social platforms. So that's TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. There's also laughing man without the, the, um, so it might be that on some platforms, but laughing man with three F's L A triple F I N M A N. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for, thanks for coming around. Like I said, new podcast intro on the way. So, uh, you're just going to come to listen to it one day and there's going to be a totally different music at the beginning of it and at the end. And it's going to be fucking epic. Um, I'm a fan of it. I mean, even just like this nascent version of it, like it's really good. It kind of makes me cry a little bit because of how good it is. So, but I don't want to like toot it too much just in case, you know, <laughs> just in case. Well, actually, I don't care if you guys like it. I think it's great. So hopefully you'll hear it and you'll also be grateful for it. Anyway, uh, we'll see you all in the next one.